I'm struck by, today is Transfiguration Sunday in the life of the church, and so that's why we've read the Transfiguration text today. I'm struck by the amount of time that Jesus prays throughout the gospel. I mean, if the Son of God needs to pray, probably a pretty good idea that all of us need to pray more regularly and faithfully, right? And if you just look at the Gospel of Luke alone, we've seen several instances where Luke has highlighted that Jesus would take, away, take some time away and go to a deserted place to pray. And these times of prayer were typically right before critical moments and critical decisions in Jesus' life and His ministry. So if you think back a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus' baptism, guess what Jesus was doing in that moment? He was praying. And when Jesus got ready to choose His apostles, His leadership team, His closest friends and colleagues, His inner circle, if you will, guess what Jesus did before He made that critical decision? He went off to a deserted place and He prayed. After Jesus had healed a man with leprosy and all sorts of people began to come to Jesus and began to seek to hear and be healed by Jesus, what did Jesus do? He withdrew to a quiet place where He would pray. It was after a time of prayer that Jesus had the question that He posed to His disciples. Who do people say that I am? And more importantly, who do you say that I am? And then we have the Scripture lesson this morning. Jesus invites Peter and John and James. He takes them up onto a mountain where they enter into a time of prayer. Prayer seems to be important, not only to Jesus, but He's modeling that it should be important to us. And I don't know what you think about prayer, but prayer does a lot of different kinds of things. Prayer can settle us. Uh, Prayer can make us uh, settle us down. It can also fire us up. Prayer can sustain us. Prayer can prepare us. Prayer can raise questions. And prayer can provide answers. Prayer may not always change the mind and the heart of God, but prayer will always if we allow it, change us. And so I think that Jesus is modeling for us the importance of prayer. And as I was wrestling with this passage this week in light of the special call general conference session, it was as if God was speaking to me and saying, Tommy, whatever you say and whatever you do and whatever your church says and whatever your church does in response to the general conference It needs to be bathed in prayer. You need to make sure that you're taking time away and going to God in prayer. Now some people use prayer as a way of avoiding action and avoiding responsibility. So I hope you hear me that I'm not suggesting that. Some people will just say when they hear or face with something difficult, they'll just say, oh, I'll pray about that. And then they never do anything or they never respond, or they, or they never... So I'm not suggesting that at all. 
Prayer is not meant to be a way to avoid action and to avoid responsibility and to avoid making changes in our lives. But prayer is essential for seeking the heart and the mind of God. And so what I want to ask you, my church family, to do is to enter into with me a season of prayer where we are seeking the mind and the heart of God as we wrestle with what has happened at General Conference and what may be in store for the future of our denomination. I know one thing, prayer changed Jesus. Uh, It changed Him in at least a couple of different ways. There's that one story in the Scripture that I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in the Gospel narrative, but it's the story where Jesus is praying and He obviously has reached the point where He doesn't really want to go through with this whole crucifixion thing. And so he kneels down before God and he says, God, please, please, please take this cup from me. But in that same prayer, Jesus was able to say, but this is really not about what I want, Jesus said. It's about what you want, God. So not my will, but your will be done. Another way that prayer apparently changed Jesus is that it actually changed His appearance. In the Scripture lesson this morning, we're told that He and Peter and John and James go up to the mountain to pray, and then all of a sudden, we're told that Jesus' face changes, and His clothes become dazzling white. Now, if you're hearing this story, and you've been raised in the Jewish tradition, or even those of us who've been raised in the Christian tradition maybe one of the first things you think about is Moses. And you remember how Moses, who was the, the, the face of the law, you know, he goes up on Mount Sinai and he, grabs the ten, he gets the Ten Commandments and he comes back down the mountain and we're told that his face is so bright and so radiant that people won't even and can't even look at him. And, and so maybe as... We're hearing this story today, and as the disciples told this story after they experienced it, that the first thing that came to mind was that radiance that Moses had from being in the presence of Almighty God. And Jesus is obviously in the presence of God as He's on the mountain on that particular day. And maybe if you're a really great biblical scholar, you you remember... Uh, Daniel, you know, the guy of lion's den fame. Daniel had a dream uh, that's recorded in Daniel chapter 7. And in the dream, he says that this ancient, this person, the ancient of days comes and takes a seat on a throne and that his clothes are dazzling white. And so my guess is, is that when we read and hear this description of Jesus that day, that in part it was supposed to take us back and to connect us to those biblical stories that we've heard before. But all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah show up, and they are themselves adorned in glorious splendor. And this will be the last time that two men show up at very critical times in Jesus' life and ministry. If you fast forward just a little bit, After Jesus is resurrected from the dead and the women go to the tomb, two men who are also dazzling and in white 
show up and they say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And then if you go on a little further in the story, when Jesus is ascended up into heaven and everybody that was there watching it is just standing and looking up into the sky, again, we're told about two men adorned in white, dazzling, show up and they say, uh, why are you standing there looking up into the sky? The same one who's just ascended into heaven is going to come back again in the same way. So here we have these two uh, men. It is an indication that something is important is happening. It's a technique, a literary device of the scripture to let you know that something profound is happening Now, it's interesting to me that only Luke tells us what Moses and Elijah and Jesus were talking about that day. The transfiguration story occurs in two other Gospels. It occurs in Matthew and it occurs in Mark. Many would suggest that it's alluded to in John chapter 1, but it's not specifically ever referenced. But only in Luke are we told what the three of them talk about. And they're talking about Jesus' approaching death. Now the way our scripture translated it this morning is that they were that they were talking about Jesus's departure. But did you know that the word that is translated departure here could also be translated exodus. Exodus. And to translate it exodus I think is is powerful and symbolic because it is the exodus that defined the people of Israel. You remember the story about how the Hebrew people were enslaved to Egypt and how uh, they cried out to God to be uh, freed from their uh, enslavement and how God sent Moses to set God's people free from their enslavement to the Egyptians. And in our text this morning, here we have the one who came because we were enslaved enslaved to the slavery of sin and death, and how Jesus came to free us from a bondage that we are enslaved to. So I love the translation of the Exodus because I think that that's what is happening here. Jesus is talking about how he, what He must do to free us from slavery to sin and death. And then you got Elijah. He's considered the greatest prophet in the world uh, of the time. Elijah was the one that was serving during King Ahab. King Ahab was doing a lot of detestable things in the eyes of God. He was allowing the worship of false gods. He was uh, appointing priests that were outside of the Levitical family. And um, he was really, really giving making God angry, and so God sent uh, Elijah to speak to him and say, you've got to change your ways. And then uh, Elijah also performed one of the greatest feats in the Old Testament Scripture. He went to the prophets of these false gods, Baal, and he said, hey, I want you to call on your God to send fire down and consume this sacrifice that you've made to that God. And so the prophets of Baal started to do it over and over again. They prayed to their God. 
to send that fire down and it didn't happen and ultimately they had to admit defeat. And then uh, Elijah walked up and prepared a sacrifice to his God, the one true God. Then he took out a big old bucket of water and he poured it all over the bull, all over the wood, all over the stones of the altar Three different applications of water. There was so much water that it began to make trenches out beside the altar. And then Elijah called on his God and said, God, I want you to come down with fire and consume this altar. And it was the greatest light and sound show that anybody had ever seen uh, to that point. And so here you have the face of the law Moses, and the face of the greatest prophet, Elijah, and the face of God, Jesus, engaged in conversation. Now we're told that the disciples were uh, uh, weighed down with sleep, and it was only when they were fully awake that they began to see God's glory. And I wonder, how much of God's glory have you and I missed because we were asleep? And I'm not just talking about literally. I mean, some of you are missing the glory of this sermon right now because you're asleep. But, but, but I'm talking about uh, how have we missed seeing the glory of God because we were figuratively asleep. I'm talking about being so set in our ways that our minds become shut. Being closed to a new way of thinking about things a new way of seeing things. I'm talking about closing our eyes to the doubts and the questions that we have about life and faith and not being willing to wrestle with those questions and those doubts. I'm talking about closing our eyes to the fact that Scripture could be interpreted differently in so many different ways with integrity and and yet how often we think that our way is the only way of interpreting those scriptures. I'm talking about those kinds of ways of being asleep and unable to see God's glory. Now, I don't know about you, but when I've been asleep to something, there there are some very specific and particular things that will often wake me up. You know, I can just kind of be on cruise control in life, not really absorbing anything, not really thinking about anything. But when something breaks my heart or it breaks the heart of somebody that I love, then all of a sudden I'm awake. I'm fully awake. When I'm just kind of cruising through life, just kind of doing my own thing, just kind of halfway engaged with what's going on around me, and all of a sudden something makes me angry or makes someone that I love angry, you better believe I'm awake. You've got my attention now. I am awake. And you better believe that when I'm just kind of cruising through life and and then all of a sudden I realize that there's something that's not being done that should be done or not being said that should be said or something that's being said that shouldn't be said, then you can better believe that's going to wake me up. It's going to wake me up. And I hope in turn I will see God's glory. Well, Moses and Elijah uh, disappear. Uh, The disciples have been awakened to Jesus' glory. And, and Peter's so excited about it that he wants to build a booth and stay a while. I mean, this, 
Y'all give him a break. Man, he's been fishing his whole life. He's probably never been really far from the lake. Uh, he, he's probably never been on a hike up Mount, the mountain of transfiguration. Um, he's probably never seen visitors and visions like he's just seen right now. And, and, and my boy just wants to stay a while. He, he just doesn't want to leave. He just wants to soak it in for a while. But uh, the voice of God, all of a sudden this cloud comes. And it overshadows them. And we're told that those three disciples were absolutely terrified. And one of the reasons why I think they're terrified is because throughout Scripture, whenever you see a cloud, it typically means that God is being either revealed or concealed. And so they know when that cloud arrives that the presence of God is in that cloud. And what I want to suggest to you is that if you are in the midst of a cloud today, whether it be because of something going on in your personal life or what's going on in our communities, in our world, or in our church, I want to assure you that God is in the cloud. God is in that cloud that's overshadowing you right now. And I want us to claim that promise this morning. And then the voice of God says to those on that mountain, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. And you know what Jesus was saying? Jesus had just finished for the first time telling them that He has to die on the cross. And Jesus had just finished telling them that if you want to be My disciple, then you must be willing to pick up the cross and go die with Me. You see, Jesus knows that when these disciples leave this mountaintop experience, that they're about to go back down the mountain and into the world, and they're going to begin to see things and experience things and hear things that will cause them to to think that maybe this plan that they had bought into was being derailed. That maybe uh, all that they had hoped for was about to come to an end. And what Jesus wants them to know and what Jesus wants us to know is that the pain that they're about to experience and the pain that you and I experience isn't something that gets in the way of God's purposes and threatens to derail it or end it. It's something that's on the way to God's purposes being revealed. And so what I want you to hear, church, is that if you find yourself experiencing pain today, for whatever reason, and in whatever way, it's not pain that's going to derail the purposes of God from eventually being realized. It's not pain that's going to bring an end to everything that you hoped for. 
It's a pain that's on its way. It's a pain that's experienced on the way to what God's purpose and plan for plan is for the world. And so if you find yourself in a cloud today or in pain, know that God is there. And know that God's purposes won't be derailed, but will be fulfilled. Let us pray. God, give us the grace to seek your heart and your mind in prayer. And for those of us who find ourselves with a cloud overshadowing us, help us to know that you are in that cloud. And help us to know that the pain we're experiencing won't get in the way of your ultimate will for the world. Amen.